welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode is being recorded live from the NRF Big Show. Uh, we want to thank the NRF for hosting us this year. As usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and hey, Jason Scott Show listeners. We are excited to have a special guest on today. It is the CEO and co-founder of Touch of Modern, Jerry Hum. Hey, Jerry. Hey, thanks for having me. Sure, sure. Um, we always like to kind of jump into this by learning a little bit more about your career. Um, you're a serial entrepreneur like myself, so near and dear to my heart. So mm-hmm. love to hear a little bit about how you got involved, uh, where you started, and how you got to Touch of Modern. Yeah, so um, my background is actually in architecture, uh, you know, buildings and stuff, not, not technology architecture. Uh, and I met uh, co-founders through college, so four of us in total. Um, Self-taught coders as well. And is this a Stanford kind of thing, or no, no, uh, two from Cornell, two from UPenn. Actually. Okay, all right, uh, East Coast guys. All right, yeah, those yeah. were fighting words, right? There. All right, oh, yeah, hey, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So all New Yorkers, um, no, no technology background, but uh, self-taught coders uh, came out to San Francisco originally on a different idea. Actually, originally we were uh, Skyar and Raven, which are uh, two iterations of of um, a discovery and booking engine for outdoor activities and events. Hmm. And we started with that because, you know, we were four guys from New York, always wondering, you know, what is there to do on a weekend, right? Uh, we built that to kind of serve ourselves. Uh, we got Just like the Silicon Valley, four guys, you were all living together, right, coding in, right in, in, in the den. Right, yeah, very, okay. very stereotypical, right, you know, right. just watch the TV series and yep. pretty much like that with, uh, <laughs> with, uh, with us. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. And um, so, you know, we got pretty good traction, but... The business was going sideways in that uh, events and activities being locally constrained and low margin, you know, we weren't making enough per vendor to really uh, realistically scale the business, right? And so we looked at what we were good at and what we were bad at, right? We were really good at the discovery portion and also understanding, you know, that our audience, right? You know, we've got pretty good traction that way and, and usage. And in order to solve the scalability issue, we looked at, okay, what are the things can we sell to them? Um, that you know isn't really being fulfilled currently, and the idea for Touch of Modern came about one time in the living room, where the topic of speakers came up. Uh, you know, we were debating like you know who made the best speakers and, and such. One of our uh, co-founders is an audiophile, and he dropped all this technical knowledge, and he was like, "This is why this is the best speaker." And we're like, "All right, you win." Right? Uh, and we figured that all you know, every guy has their thing that they really nerd out about and spend a little bit too much money on, and so. I'm looking at Jason right now. He he does that yeah. in every category. <laughs> you could so, probably have the speaker conversation, the receiver, the amp. Uh, you, the are, you are my hardware. go-to Star Wars memorabilia, dude. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's my exactly. That's my so every everybody has their thing. I I'm into furniture and out watches. You know, we had a guy into uh, kind of f- fishing, outdoor uh, type stuff. We have another guy into uh, uh, cooking and like knives and things like that. So, um, you know, everyone has their kind of enthusiast category, you know? And so we built a site, uh, and an app really to cater toward that because we figured that, um, there wasn't really, you know, there wasn't really a destination for guys that wanted the best or the most interesting stuff. At that time, there's a lot of other e-commerce sites that were really focused on last season's apparel and leftover inventory. And none of that really appealed to us. Mm-hmm. 
Cool. And what time frame was are we talking about? That was in 2012. Okay, so you pivoted off events into right. touch of modern. Mm-hmm. Um, so now bring us up to current. You know, so 2012, you've been at this for three or four years. Yeah. Um, how are things going? Yeah. Now we're doing you know over 100 million in revenue, uh, over 12 million users, and uh, you know keep keeping on growing. Cool. Yeah. Good. Can you share kind of growth rates at this point? So e-commerce is growing 15%. Are you guys north of that? North of that, yeah. Okay, yeah, good, yeah. good. Well north of that. That's crazy because I keep reading that Pure Play is dead. You know, I think, um, you know, it, it's, I w- it's, it's not dead, but I would say that obviously uh, at a certain point you do – probably do want to out, you know, outgrow that and, and explore it if, if, if your brand warrants it, right? Obviously, you can't really say it's that. There's, there's plenty of players out there that do it at a very, very large scale and are very successful at it. Um, but yeah, it's competitive and it's difficult. Cool. Um, so it sounds like your initial demographic was mostly males mm-hmm. that kind of were interested in going deep on some of these things. And uh, instead of flash sales, which tend to be like this remnant stuff, you know, mm-hmm. so-and-so is liquidating stuff, I'll slap it up. Yeah. It sounds like going for more of a curated kind of experience. Is, yeah. that, is that still kind of where you guys still are? Still is, yeah. So uh, interesting thing about the demographic, when we started, we were not uh, explicitly male. I mean, obviously, we said customers like ourselves but we didn't think of ourselves as for guys we were just like okay f- for people from new york and you know that that kind of mindset it turned out that over time um men really gravitated toward it mostly because i think that's where the greatest need was uh or that's where the greatest hole was you know at that time there's already a lot of competitors going after the female audience um and really appealing to the way that they shop but no one is really appealing to the way that men shop so we're not explicitly male and we don't like specifically say, oh, we're going to look for the male demographic. It just so happens that that's, uh, that's what was drawn to us. Well, it seems like it would be helpful. So my wife, if she's going to buy speakers or something, yeah. you know, she, I think she would benefit from a lot of content around that. So you probably get you know, the gift-giving women coming in there, too, yeah, and, and certainly audiophiles and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So we're about 80% male and um, you know, 20% female, but the female portion does increase around the holiday time. Yeah. Cool. Uh, and then I'm always fascinated. I'm uh, in the mobile side, so... Mm-hmm. You know, I would imagine that probably over-indexes for you guys is the, is yeah. the app kind of one of the most popular ways right. to get the to app is actually Yeah, the mobile app actually is the primary platform, even over the web browser. Uh, in total, we're about two-thirds mobile. And that is, um, I think that is a factor of, of uh, you know, the slick UX that we have, um, you know, content that refreshes daily, so reason for people to actually come back often. And then also men in general are more mobile. Okay. And you guys do the typical flash sale thing where there's a, a period of time every day where you launch new stuff kind of around noon, noon Eastern, nine yeah, yeah, Pacific. Yeah. Right. So that, that is the model that we work on. Uh, yeah. The main difference is where in the product lifecycle that we play, right? So um, as you said earlier, uh, you know, a lot of the flash sale competitors at the time were really going toward remnant and leftover inventory. And we focus a lot more on the beginning of product lifecycle uh, we call it pre-tail stuff that you know hasn't hit retail shelves yet, so um, it's more of a of a kind of uh, first to market, uh, going after the early adopter rather than uh, clearance shoppers. Interesting. Um, so, so there's been a lot out there about flash sales, and you mm-hmm. know, kind of guilt was one of the earlier ones, um, and then there's that French one whose name I always forget. Bon Privé. Yep. Uh, and then uh, you know, and then Zillow kind of got out kind of focused on the moms, but then they all have seemed to kind of hit this ceiling and many of them have kind of declined. Um, and you guys seem to be continuing to flourish. What, what is it? What do you think about the flash sale industry and that yeah. you're kind of a part so, of and Why are you guys different? So, um, you know, we hear that a lot flash sale industry and really flash sale is not an issue, right? Like it's, uh, 
sales have been around since the beginning of retail, right? And it's another manifestation of it. And I think, um, especially coming from the investment community, they kind of tend to lump things according to uh, a transaction model or the thing that jumps out to them as, as what is different about a business. But, you know, for us, it's never really about how you transact. It's about the market and the merchandise in retail, right? And how do you make those two things meet, right? And in some cases, uh, it makes more sense to go the traditional e-com route where you stock and, and, and sell. It's more permanent. In other cases, uh, in our case, because we are serving up new and interesting and it's fresh every day, that kind of rotating inventory model works for us, right? And so that is why we use it. That's the main difference. If you're using it just to say we're um, advertising a discount every day, right? Then you don't really need to to do that, right? Eventually, people understand that it's not really a discount. That's just always the price, right? Um, you just slashed out a fictional MSRP. Uh, but for us, it's it's not really about that. It's really um, something new is 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 the first part, and then the best price is the reason you buy. Yeah, I feel like there's a bunch of lawsuits going on right now about the fictional MRP, so that's yeah, yeah. not a good model. Right, right. Um, the I'm curious, going back to mobile, so yeah. uh, because a significant portion of your your customer base is on the app, mm-hmm. um, you also like don't really have a guest checkout, right? Like you have to right, right. Uh, have an account in order to browse mm-hmm. and shop. Um, that to me says you're focused a lot more on customer lifetime value right. yep. because you've you've made it harder for them to make that first purchase. There's more friction to download the app and all those things, but in exchange, you get a stickier, more loyal customer. Exactly. Is that, um, a lot of retailers struggle with that that balance, that mm-hmm. like it's more expensive to acquire customers in, in your model, but each customer can potentially be more valuable. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it depends on what kind of business you run, right? So, if you are uh, a Walmart, but it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? Um, you know, it, it. Thank God you said that because that was my <laughs> advice to Walmart. Yeah. So it is basically a a you know customer lifetime value versus customer acquisition cost, and for us, this is the best way to go about it. Yeah. So, um, so I find that I learn a lot from the mobile oriented guys like yourselves, app kind of guys. Um, what are the best ways? So that CAC LTV is huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, LTV is just keeping long, you know, the cost to acquire a customer compared to the ratio for their yeah. lifetime value. Once you get one of your 12 million members, that's probably pretty locked in. So then CAC is kind of interesting. Um, a lot of folks in your, your space, in that app space, do really well on Facebook. Is, is that a, a big yeah. channel for you guys? Yeah, it's a great and, channel for us. Yeah. Especially for, you know, if you think about what we're doing, we're appealing to a certain type of person, right? And not necessarily, like a search term. We're not saying like, you know, there's not somebody looking for power outlets and stuff. And then we're saying, oh, we sell power outlets. It's more like we're looking for a certain profile of a person that, you know, uh, has disposable income coming from major city and, and is interested in kind of cool and unique products. Yeah. So some of the retailers that listen have really struggled on getting their app out there. Any any tips that you can, you know, don't want any super proprietary stuff, but yeah, like, what mean, are some of the things at, that, that have worked well for you guys? At, at a high level, it's uh, find find the the meaning of the app before the vehicle right because i think oftentimes people you look at this and say oh you know spend a shipping toward mobile we have to be on mobile and that is that is like the purpose right which is it's not really the way you should really think about it it's more like uh why do you need mobile first and then and then tailor the vehicle around that right if you're just building a mobile app as a mirror of the website it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense you have to think about uh the differences between both right and on a website 
it is you know the customer is coming to your piece of real estate, right? They're typing in your URL and and, and visiting your site. But with mobile, you're asking to be downloaded onto their piece of real estate. You're asking to be in on their device, right? And so you need a reason for that. Like think about things in your home, right? You don't. There's nothing in your home you only use once a year. Like you use everything in your home pretty much on a daily basis, or the, the vacuum cleaner, right? Right, pretty frequently. <laughs> <laughs> but no, for the most part, pretty frequently, right? And so your app has to be that way, right? If you're a brand that's like, oh. We only refresh our content once a season. Then what are you doing every time in between, right? The customer needs to have a reason to open frequently in order for you to succeed uh, on mobile. Yeah, so, so let's let's kind of dig into your business model a little bit. Some of the flash sale folks I've talked to, um, you know, some of the things they struggle with is that drumbeat of adding new product every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when you think about shooting the product, writing the content, um, that kind of really, really get gets to be cumbersome. And then a lot of them went through this model where uh, they were intermediaries. So they would get a bunch of orders um, for a sale over 24 hours. They would submit them to a manufacturer mm-hmm. and they'd get shipped out. The problem with that is it would take, you know, four weeks because manufacturers aren't kind of you know, mm-hmm. on the Amazon prime side of things where customer expectations are, you know, two day shipping. Um, yeah. Have you got, you know, I'd love to hear you riff on, you know, what yeah. you guys have learned in those two areas of how do you, is it super expensive to kind of do this daily thing? And then have you had to do things like warehouses and stuff? Or are you still super asset light? So we are still super asset light, um, and we do run our own warehouse. Uh, we do still operate on that model, but because we've custom built all of our our own uh, fulfillment systems and software, we can actually get it done uh, a lot quicker than our competitors can in terms of getting items to the customer. Uh, it takes a little. I mean, obviously, it will take longer than Amazon Prime. Um, although some things do ship same day. Uh, very quickly, depending on where you're at. You know, if you're in California and you're buying something that's a racing or warehouse, it's a day, right? Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, on the reason why I think a lot of other sites have really failed with it, especially in this model, is because they go at, with um, out-of-the-box solutions that aren't really custom-tailored for that type of fulfillment, right? Most... Um, most people that go into this business, they start using a 3PL, which is a, a, a third-party logistics provider. Um, and those are often built for pick and pack, right? Which is more the Amazon model, right? It's like yeah. you put something into inventory, into a shelf, order comes in, you go take it, and you ship it, right? Uh, we have our operation tailored more for cross-stocking, which is stuff comes in, goes out the same day. Uh, so we're not really putting a whole lot of extra time uh, on the customer's delivery because it's so what you're doing is you're running the sale. Let's say there's a, a widget, a speaker widget. Mm-hmm. You run the sale, and then you know you need a thousand of them. You go ahead and get them from the manufacturer. You cross stock them and get them out. You're right, right. You don't pre-order the thousand. Sometimes we do. It depends on if we uh, if we know exactly how much, or we have a very good predictor um, because we've run it before. Very predictable decay. Then we can do that. And you mentioned writing your own uh, fulfillment or OMS. Yeah. Is that because uh, you knew you specifically had unique needs there, and you use off-the-shelf stuff for like other elements of the commerce stack, or do you tend to no, we, we to be t- we tend to custom build everything just uh, actually out of necessity because when we started uh, we didn't have any engineers. It was actually uh, Stephen and I, our CTO, and myself that coded uh, for the first couple of years, um, and you know SaaS software is expensive, and we said better use our time and build a custom solution uh, and and just kind of learn with it and scale with it rather than, you know, have it, you know, live on, on somebody else's system and then try to bring it in-house at scale. It could be really cumbersome and really disruptive. So we just figured, 
it's an adolescent stage and we'll just grow with it and, and, and keep, keep scaling it. Now imagine um, you've got kind of an interesting audience. So if I'm a brand, you know, I imagine you go, you've gone through this life cycle where um, early days brands are kind of looking at like, who are these guys, mm-hmm. but now you've got such an interesting audience. I bet brands come to you and say, you know, um, you know, a, I want to get to that. You know, help me launch a product because it does seem like you're earlier in the life cycle, or even maybe you know, help me develop a product. Has that happened? Yeah, it's happened often. So sometimes, um, you know, we get people writing in uh, with a product that's really cool, but there's, you know, not quite the product market fit. Maybe there's features missing, maybe it's priced incorrectly or, or, uh, or something like that. And they do often ask for advice and we do give it. Obviously, we want to see more, um, more products that can serve uh, our market. And, you know, they often take that advice if they can. Nice. Uh, so it wouldn't be a Jason and Scott show if we didn't talk about uh, our friends up in Seattle, mm-hmm. Amazon. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, a while back, we did a deep dive on Amazon. And we talked about ways to compete with them. And one of the the angles that we we mentioned was viable to compete was really to focus on curation right, right. versus Amazon, which obviously wins on assortment. Right. And to me, you seem like a perfect example of someone that's taken that path. Is there, uh, given where you are now, is there a way that you can uh, leverage Amazon? Do you think of them as irrelevant to you or a potential partner or I mean, they, a potential they're, threat? They're always relevant, but I think it is, if you think about, um, you know, the customer's uh, incentive to shop, right, or reason to, to buy something, there's really two parts to it, right? It's either either you're searching for something and you need it or... Um, you know, something is being brought to you and you're like, oh, I didn't know that was there, right? And so we're really that second part, right? No one really goes on Amazon thinking like, oh, let me just, let me see what they have today that's new. And, you know, they really go there because, oh, I, I need this thing and they want it the best price and they go search Amazon and it's there, right? For us, um, most of the products that we sell probably don't do as well on Amazon because no one's looking for it because it's it's novel and people don't know it exists. And we're bringing that to the customer and that's why they're they're buying it. Obviously, we offer the best price because in in a world where you can price shop, you have to be the best price, and you know we don't believe in in duping the customer that way. So, um, you know that that is how we compete, and that's how we see they are they're kind of like, uh, you know, if if we're one half of the brain, they'd be the other half. Cool. You guys are in the Bay Area, and you've raised. Uh, I, I just looked at Crunchbase; it said seventeen million. Sometimes yeah. it's right, sometimes it's wrong. So mm-hmm. let's say ballpark twenty million in uh, venture capital. Um, has how have you found that venture capital from a e-commerce perspective? You know, you hear uh, it always goes through cycles. Is, yeah. Has it been super easy for you, or have you had to kind of explain to folks why you're different and unique? And well, we, have, we haven't raised the round in two and a half years now, but um, from what we hear, uh, just you know, uh, through the grapevine is that, yeah, venture capital for, um, e-commerce is, is more difficult now than it has been in the past. Mm -hmm. And I think it'll, yeah, it goes in waves. It'll come back right around. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. What's trendy in the Bay area, um, these days? Oh, trendy in the Bay area. Well, do see a lot of focus on hardware more than previous, uh, previous years. Although I think that's, I wouldn't say that's that current of a trend. I think even last year that w- that, w- that might have been the case. Yeah. yeah, but that's good for you because it's more stuff for you to sell. On yeah, it is. It is. So <laughs> that's one of the things that we do keep track of is uh, how many things are entering our CRM in terms of uh, new vendors, and that's increasing uh, every day. Yeah, uh, a lot of pure plays that have gotten kind of to your scale and maybe a little bit further um, have found that they it helps to open up stores, you know, physical stores. Have you guys ever thought about that as a strategy? It is something that we're thinking of. I think that. Um, 
it's more of a like what if like that'd be a great uh you know, great thing to do because a lot of our products do, I think, benefit from actual demonstration because, you know, they're not, it's not like a shirt. You're just like, oh, it's a shirt. I know what that looks like. It's like, you know, a drone that follows you around. You have to test that out and see how that works. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think we're looking for the, uh, the right opportunity to do that. Yeah. Have you met the guys at uh, Beta in? No, uh, I up? haven't, but I've heard. Uh, a few things about them, so yeah, yeah, be they, to, be, them. they would be an interesting fit for you because that yeah, yeah. the their their concept retail store in Palo Alto, just off University Avenue, and their 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 model is, uh, man, there are a bunch of products that really have to be demonstrated to yeah. sell. Let's build a, a retail platform that's focused on demonstrating these hard to explain products. Yeah, yeah. And you you could pin it. Yeah, you could us, envision a uh, partnership. Yeah, for us uh, doing it online right now, uh, one of the big pushes this year is for video. And more rich content around that. Also because it goes in line with mobile, right? People are consuming a lot more uh, image and video content on mobile nowadays. And alongside with that, we're also building out uh, something called the manuscript, which is um, kind of like written educational content uh, to kind of support that video. And it's all about, you know, stuff like, you know, at what age do you outgrow Ikea furniture? You know, how do you saber a champagne bottle? How do you throw a Super Bowl party? Things like that. And is that content that you would expect someone to want while they're deciding to buy a product, or is that like actual editorial content that it's more you editorial. Might, might bring eyeballs to your site yeah, yeah. Um, and build engagement? So that's... Right. Uh, and uh, marketing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but that whole content versus commerce thing is interesting to me, because there, obviously there have been a bunch of sites that grew up creating editorial content and have been successful at that. Yeah, yeah. There are sites that grew up offering catalogs of products and have been successful at that. Uh, we we don't have a ton of examples yeah. of people that are elegantly good at both. Yeah, I think I think um, what happens is typically when you see folks try that, it's often you know uh, a content company and a commerce company that are colliding. It's not really it's not really homegrown. Yep. So um, yeah, I think that's something that we're just going to try and, and see how that goes. Yep. Yeah, it usually feels too advert advertising. You know, it's kind of yeah. like you're reading your men's magazine Sunday. It's like you know off topic here's why this thing's great oh you can buy it and you're like yeah yeah for, so, for it seems us like pushed. Yeah. for us it's, it's very much a um it's more of a rounding out the lifestyle thing not content to push you know uh to push sales yeah it's uh the one that drives me nuts is uh there are lots of sites that literally like their top navigation is read shop Mm-hmm. So it's like you're only you like the two can't yeah. commingle. You mm-hmm. you know you you're gonna come and choose one or the other, um, and that that model certainly doesn't seem to work. And to your point, those sites almost inevitably one of those is their home base, and that's what they focus on, and the other is an afterthought. Right, right, right. Um, but it's it's an interesting area because I don't I don't think there is a a best practice. Oh, if you just follow these steps, yeah, yeah. you'll win. Right. To your point, like your most loyal customer isn't going to do a transaction with you every day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Like, yeah. Um, it's something to keep the mind engaged. You know? Exactly. Yeah. And so like, reasons to get those more visits and to keep that, that customer engaged and sticky and keep that app mm-hmm. closer to the home screen. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, it's, it, and the more times they touch you, the, the greater your LTV is going to be in the long run. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I do want to go back. Uh, so you talked a lot about focusing on the discovery and even your previous... Um, ventures, you've, you felt like that was one of the strengths. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's still an area where I think, like, also there aren't great examples of best practices in digital right. yet. So when you think of a brick-and-mortar store, you know, we all have examples in our favorite genre of a store that's really fun to explore. Like, you know, here, we're in New York, we're, we're pretty close to the Perch 
Soho store, which is one of my favorite mm-hmm. physical stores. Um, do you feel like you like like what is the strategy for creating great discovery experiences digitally? Like, do you feel yeah. like you found any secret sauce? I would say um, what we often find is either a lot of our competitors are either uh, too algorithmically focused or too manual. It's very hard to find a good balance, right? So what happens when you have something that's very algorithmic, it becomes like like those Amazon recommendations where it's like you see what they did, but it doesn't really match up with what you're looking for kind of thing. And then on the um, manual side, it's often too, it feels too much like you're being talked to, right? It's like, or, or something is really just one person's perspective, right, uh, on, on what you should buy or whatever, right? And for us, it's, it's really a good balance of a data-driven approach where we're using analytics to say, you know, what works and what doesn't work, and then having creative uh, uh, mind to go and, and look for how to fulfill those needs rather than strictly one or the other. Cool. Do you, uh, kind of along that line, have you guys ever identified a product need out there and you can't find a product and would you ever create your own products? So Amazon, we just had you know a guy that covers Amazon and um, he's uncovered a lot of private label stuff they're doing. And that's kind of one of the reasons they've said they've done it. Like, you know, they found that there wasn't a $35 high quality khaki pant on Amazon. Mm-hmm. They just went and built one and they call it, you know, Amazon Basics. Have, have you guys ever thought about that as, as part of your business model? Yeah, we have been experimenting with some of those things, especially with uh, certain categories that you know um, that we aren't able to fulfill uh, the, the demand for, um, but it's not you know so far it's not a that big a part of our business, but hopefully hopefully growing. Okay. Uh, one question I always like to ask retailers: Are any fun sales successes that surprised you, like the quirky product that you wouldn't have expected to be a good runner? That- um, I wouldn't say so. So I don't think there's too many things that that really surprise. But I will talk about the one that's top of mind to me as a a little mini flamethrower that you strap to your wrist. Um, it actually shoots out a little ball of fire, and that was one of those things where I mean we knew it would do well because that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, you just want to do that at a cocktail yeah, party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, can we get some of those for <laughs> tonight? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But uh, we I, I guess uh, we didn't know if we'd get. Um, a lot of backlash on it. People were thinking, oh, like, writing in is it safe or whatever. But uh, we did test it out. It is safe and, you know, hope, you know, luckily went off without a hitch. You have good liability insurance? <laughs> you do. <laughs> <laughs> cool. um, so take, maybe taking your, um, your CEO hat off for a second and just looking at the industry of the whole, yeah. um, you know, we sort of feel like we're in an inflection point here at NRF this year, and people are, ta- you know, there are people that had a really good holiday season and good year. Mm-hmm. They're optimistic. There are obviously a lot of traditional retailers that didn't do as well as they they'd like and are making adjustments. Where where do you see the commerce space going? Like, what what do you think it's going to look like in the next three to five years? Yeah, I think uh, next three to five years, much much more focus on mobile. Uh, I would even venture to say that, um, you know, that the uh, the desktop commerce is a stepping stone to mobile. You think about how much time people spend on mobile versus um, desktop, it's increasingly more mobile, right? Think about it. You're only on your desktop at work and at home. Every other time, it's mobile. Even at even more and more so at home, people are mobile rather than desktop, right? I know a lot of folks nowadays who if they don't have to take their work home, they don't even have a computer. They have an iPad and a, and a phone and that's it. So I think uh, a lot of shift there and, and that, that changes the way people may look at content and and um, all the other aspects that are involved in, in e-commerce. 
Well, what? Um, so you, you you have strong beliefs in mobile. What? Who else does mobile apps really well aside from yourselves, of course? I mean, you could just take a look at the top of the list in terms of a uh, of a uh, of, of um, you know uh, the shopping category in the app store. Mm-hmm. I think that. Um, I, I, I can't say that I know enough about the internals of each one of their businesses to say whether or not they're good or bad, but I know that there Just are... from an app perspective, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From an app perspective, there's a lot of other players that are making making a big splash there. Cool. Uh, another topic we get a lot in your space is around personalization. Sure. Um, and, like, what's your... A, a like, pe- diff- people mean... It's almost a, a meaningless buzzword at this yeah, point. Yeah, like yeah. People mean very different things, and right. I'd just be curious where you guys come in on the... Yeah, it's, it's a loose term. I'd say that uh, we tend to focus more on segmentation, right? Which is, um, you know, personalization is very one-to-one, meaning like, you know, an a- Amazon recommendations, those are personalizations, right? It's based on things that you looked at. For us, we're looking more at segmentation, which is like bucketing users into groups and looking at the data that comes from that group. That's much more useful for us because you get bigger sets of data to work with, right? Um, and you get to draw more conclusions in terms of like this user looks like that user and therefore we're, you know, we're going to almost like combine the way we look at them, right? Uh, that's much more effective for us. Do you have a data science team that does this kind of we stuff? We do, yeah. yeah. How big Great. is your team? Like, how, yeah. o- Overall, we have about, I don't want to say like 170-ish folks. Oh, yeah. yeah. How does it feel to be the CEO feeding 170 mouths? That's always stressful. For yeah, me. it's stressful, but it's also <laughs> a learning experience. I think they, uh, the stress is a privilege, right? There's not a lot of people that uh, get to carry that stress, and you know, I'll, I'll I'll take it. Have you gotten to the point yet where you didn't know someone's name when they introduced themselves to you? Yeah, that happens. I mean, happens I try like around one fifty. So. Yeah, no, that's it's true. It happens <laughs> to me at about yeah. fifty, but okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I try to know everyone's name, um, but you know, inevitably, you, you you can't do that, and you just you have to try your best. Right? Yeah. It's a first world problem when the venue for the Christmas party keeps getting harder and harder to source. Yeah, that is actually, yeah, that is true. Every year it's, it's more amazing how, how big the, the space is. Yeah, an office space in the Bay Area is brutally hard to find. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stand. Luckily we have a good sublease. Where are you guys located? Uh, in Petrero Hill. We're actually in the uh, old Sega headquarters. Sega, the uh, you know, Sonic yeah, Hedgehog yeah. company. So yeah. you're in the city proper? Yep. Yeah, okay. Wow. I've, I've spent many, many hours in that building. Oh, cool. yeah? yeah. Uh, Have you seen Sonic running around the building? No, they had they had larger-than-life statues, and I wish they let uh, us keep yeah, some of them. They, some of those. they didn't. I guess they... Uh, That's unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, so the Bay Area is an interesting place to do a technology startup, because obviously yeah. there's ton of talent there and there's a ton of competition for that talent yeah. like mm-hmm. you, you know um, you kind of told us the origin story in the beginning like net net do you feel like that's the best place you could be if you had to do it I mean, uh, go to Austin or something building or? a REIT or, or, or an e-commerce company in San Francisco is hard because um, you know e-commerce and retail in general is headcount heavy and headcount is expensive in San Francisco but I would say uh I don't know how else we could have done it because, you know, um, we're four guys, first time entrepreneurs without a big reputation. It's hard to get investors to look outside of the valley. Right. And so we had to go to them. Um, you know, if we were to start it over now, you know, I, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if that'd be the best place to do it. But at the time, given, I think that was that was the right move. One of the big trends in the electronic industry is services that kind of come along with the electronics. Amazon does a lot of this where, you know, you'll go buy a big screen TV and then they've got this network of people to go install stuff. Uh-huh. Um, there's that startup that will come and install it for you. Kind of like Geek Squad, but it's called... Joy. Joy. Mm. Um, have you guys thought about that? It seems like that would be kind of interesting given your your segment there. Although, you know, maybe some, so most of your customers are so 
geeky. They don't need help. I don't know. Yeah, so far, um, it hasn't really been uh, a top priority for us. You know, I think we tend to, and it, it may be a self-selection thing, right? Because we also tend to look for products that are easy to install because we know that, you know, that it, you, you want satisfied customer. You, do, you want things to make, you want it to be easy rather than figuring out like, oh, you got to layer on this other service, you know, coordinate the logistics of bringing in people to your home to install it and timing that correctly. Um, so I think we tend to just aim for things that are more easy to install. That was actually an interesting trend from CES this year is there are a lot of categories where people felt like the category had limited it itself because it was arduous to install and you need a professional installer or whatever. Mm -hmm. So there were a lot of things where like the new innovation was it was self-installable for the Mm -hmm. first time, like Mm -hmm. uh, home alarm systems or stuff like that. Right, right, right. They're suddenly seeing a new market. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is, uh, yeah, smart home stuff particularly. Cool. Um, so we really have enjoyed having you on the show. If people yeah. want to get in touch with you, do you tweet? Are you on Twitter? And obviously, touchofmodern.com, download the app. Yeah. Um, in terms of social media, I think uh, Facebook page is is uh, where we communicate the most. Okay. Yeah. Cool. And then do you write any medium? Do you kind of document your journey as you're doing this stuff at all? Or are you just uh, heads down executing? Mostly heads down executing. <laughs> I should do more of that, but yeah. you know, maybe in the future. Cool. Awesome. Very Great. cool. Well, it has happened again. Uh, we've used our allotted time, but we totally appreciate you taking some time out from the show, Jerry, and talking with us and sharing your insights with our listeners. Right. Thanks for having me. Yep. Thanks. And uh, also thanks to NRF for hosting us. Happy commercing. Happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.